Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yad Hassami, a host of this channel. I'm working on my doctorate about ecology, agriculture, and education in mid-20th century Lebanon at the University of Leeds, and my research is supported by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council. Today on the show, we will be speaking with David Rodonio about his new book, Night on Earth, a History of International Humanitarianism in the Near East, 1918 to 1930. It's great to have you on the show, David. Hi, everybody. Hi, Ayad. Thank you very much for having me. David, I wonder if you could begin our interview today by telling us a little bit about yourself. Right. So I came to Switzerland back in uh, another century, and I started studying here. I, I kept uh, you know working here, studying here up until the end of the 1990s, and then, like many other academics, I thought my, you know, my career in academia was over. I tried uh, several other routes, but eventually the appeal of academia got me and I moved to uh, LSE, to Paris, and I got my first permanent position at St. Andrews and then came back in the late 2000s here in Geneva, where I continued my career and I've been working within the Department of International History and Politics of the Geneva Graduate Institute for International and Development Studies, where I currently work and research. And I've been a very unfaithful kind of historian because I moved from uh, uh, military occupations during World War II, anti-Semitism, occupation policies and politics to um, the history of the Ottoman Empire and um, so-called Intervention d'Humanité, which is the... uh, um, which was the uh, previous name for humanitarian interventions. And for those of you that are interested, um, the current terminology is rather uh, responsibility to protect, and many people don't like it. And um, and then from that project, I moved to this one, Night on Earth, which I started when I was back at St. Andrews. And in the meantime, I've been doing other things, working on the League of Nations, working on humanitarian photography, working on the history of minorities, and the UAM. Thank you for sharing. It's wonderful to hear. So I understood that you started working on Night on Earth at St. Andrews when you were there. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the book? Yeah, the origins um, are really related to the very end of the Games Massacre, which was my monograph on on uh, Western humanitarian interventions in the Ottoman Empire throughout the 19th century. And I felt I, I, I had not finished what I had to say because the book does not cover the Armenian genocide, does not cover uh, the First World War. And then, of course, you know, to start working on the the Armenian genocide would have been a completely different topic. And so many good scholars and historians have been working on it that I I felt so much had been said and written that um, I wanted to explore the aftermath of it. And there was a story or a history or several history that... um, really had to do with non-state actors, international associations, 
philanthropic foundations and so on and so forth. And, and so I became very, very interested since I had an interest in the region, the Near East, in Ottoman lands, broadly speaking, uh, I started working on it and, um, you know, um, the generosity, the freedom and the possibilities that I had at St. Andrews were important, very significant, and I will always be very, very, very grateful. And so these, these projects started over there and then continued in Geneva because many archives uh, are located in Geneva. If you think about the uh, um, ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross, the League of Nations, and many others are scattered, you know, either in the Near East, ex-Ottoman lands, or in the United States of America. So these were the origins of, uh, of the book. Uh, again, back in probably, what, 2008, 2009, something like this. So let's turn now to the introduction of your book. And there you situate your project in the field of research on humanitarianism. You also compose a theoretical framework that casts humanitarians in the post-Ottoman interwar period as, quote, Promethean with juggernaut heroism. These humanitarian actors that some you've already mentioned, International Committee of the Red Cross um, and Near East Relief, are not secular institutions, you argue. Furthermore, their progressivism and paternalistic moral agendas corresponded to dual processes. Firstly, developments in communication technologies, particularly photography, which you've already alluded to. And secondly, a radicalization of warfare. I was really moved by how you portray the radicalization of warfare as a two-part saga. The first unfolding in Western Europe in 1914 to 8, 1918, and the second in the Near East after 1918 during the so-called Second Great War. Can you comment on this periodization and elaborate further on that particular framing, please? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, good, a good, nice, complex uh, question. I will segment it if you allow me to do so. Um, the first thing that I would like to say is that um, I'm very honored that you refer to what I tried to do as a theoretical framework. I would be infinitely more modest about it. I, I try to imagine not really an ideal type in the barbarian sense of the of the word, but um, a way of um, you know uh, uh, bundling together a number of features of characteristics of these Western humanitarians, whether they were Americans or. Western Europeans, you mentioned the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Near East Relief. So Prometheanism and this um, uh, blind faith in a certain kind of progress, which were, was their progress, and that's a very you know, imperialistic, colonial, racist kind of idea, uh, uh, was intrinsic to that. It was in their uh, DNA, I would say. But in the book, I insist as well that they were provincial, they were nationalists, they were imperialists, I already said so. And they were also extremely arrogant. They were sure there was a certain degree of um, certainty, I would say, that they knew how to help out. And this was the only possible way to help out undeveloped, and here I use virtual inverted commas, or underdeveloped little um, Near East communities. So um, 
I insist very much in the book on these civilizational colonial posture of all these people. And this is not because I'm cynical, but because I think we really have to understand the context and who were these, uh, you know, white Christian educated elites that could afford becoming humanitarians back then. And so uh, technology is part of the tale. They could feel that they were superior to these people through technology. This is something that we know very, very well. And you work in uh, environmental history, so probably you have been exposed to that uh, massively. So this, this aspect is really part of the story. I think this is also why I insist so much on the importance of uh, religion. And you know, we are obsessed with this quest of uh, the birth of something absolutely new. I'm not so persuaded that um, the early 20th century Western humanitarianism was so dramatically, drastically new with respect to the 19th century. First of all, because the protagonists very often are missionaries, for sure in the Near East, this is uh, that's a fact. And secondly, because um, uh, the importance of religion is central, and I refer to Christianity and a certain kind of uh, Protestant uh, expansionism, which is uh, part and parcel of the history uh, of Western humanitarianism in Ottoman la lands or ex-Ottoman lands after 1923. So this is important. And the last part of your question has to do with the periodization. And today, many historians, I think about Jay Winter and many, many others, you know, speak of a very long First World War, uh, saying, you know, November 1918 is not the end of it. It continues in, ma in many, many, many different places uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, in Bolshevik Russia, and of course, in the Ottoman lands. I mean, the, uh, uh, the Greek military occupation of Asia Minor, Anatolia, and other parts uh, of what would become Turkey in 1923, the Republic of Turkey, uh, it's a very important part of the First World War. It takes place, of course, after 1918. And so this time period that goes from 1918 to the Treaty of Lausanne, and I know that we are going to discuss about this later on, is really part of my story. And... Uh, so many experiences that were done by some of these actors from 1914 to 1918. I can think about the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the American Red Cross, and other uh, actors, uh, we will talk about Herbert Hoover later on, would become really important in the Near East after 1918. And so I do see bridges between 1914 and 1918, I do see continuities. I also see ruptures. And so this is the reason why this periodization makes sense in my particular case. I don't want to impose it on other historians. But as far as my research is concerned, my First World War, so to say, goes from 1914 to 1923 for sure. And even probably beyond 1923. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm struck by how you described the cast of characters, um, the humanitarians and their posture and the certainty and faith. Um, and this is one of the great uh, strengths of your book, of course, is that it's populated with 
nets of characters like a Dostoevsky novel. Um, and so on that note, um, let's talk about Herbert Hoover, who emerges as a towering and influential figure in international humanitarianism in your book. Why is Herbert Hoover essential to your story, and what struck you most about his entanglements? Well, he he embodies all the uh, certainties of the beginning of the 20th century. He's, he's um, an engineer, uh, but at the same time, he uh, you know repudiates his friend's past. And so uh, there is something that has to be said about uh, how he grew up, the kind of person he is, how he stands in contrast, how he defies and challenges all charities and the old way of being humanitarians and doing humanitarian actions, turning everything into something that has to be administered. It's absolutely not, um, you know, um, by by chance that the name of one of the institutions that he will set up is American Relief Administration. The point is precisely to administer in a scientific, efficient way, relief. But this is extremely important, and this is why he's such a, an influential figure. He's also so influential because, of course, the model of the institution that he creates it's not the kind of institution that many of your listeners might think to when they think about NGOs today. Because, of course, Herbert Hoover does what he does with the support of two extremely important institutions, the American state and American governmental money. This is important. And, of course, we, we've been talking about, uh, you know, humans that populate my book. So many of the humans that work for the American Relief Administrations are ex-soldiers, U.S. soldiers. So the way they interpret humanitarianism has to do with what they know about how to do the job. And their job was to be military. So when it comes to logistics, for instance... They were like military persons. And this is absolutely important. And Hoover understands this. The very scale of what he wants to do has nothing to do with, uh, you know, what traditional charities or humanitarian associations have been doing before. And of course, this is uh, a cataclysmic kind of uh, event for all other humanitarians. The ICRC in Geneva does not understand what this guy is doing. The scale of it is, you know, 10, 15, 20 times bigger of all the operations, and the ICRC was big already. So when he came in, he, he started something that was really revolutionary. And there is, in this respect, there is a huge discontinuity between the 19th century and what we see after 1918. And so the operation of the American Relief Administration in the uh, recently created Soviet Union and in Ottoman lands, especially in the Caucasus, and we're going to talk about that later on, are very, very, very important. So you refer to entanglements. Yes, of course, um, his connections with uh, the uh, American governments and uh, all its parts, I would say, 
uh, his connection with the American president, his connection with American big business, with philanthropic foundations, are absolutely central to understand uh, how Western humanitarianism changed. I would like to conclude with something else that we tend to forget. So many people that worked for the American Relief Administration, and probably they were in their late 20s, early 30s, in 1920, 21, 22, whatever, would be very profoundly marked by this experience. And we will see uh, some of them, I would even say many of them, playing important role with UNRWA and with other UN institutions uh, during World War II and the end of it. So we were talking about entanglements. Well, this is one. And this continuity in terms of practices, of ideas, of ways of doing things, it's something that definitely start with Herbert Hoover and the American Relief Administration that remains to this state relatively understudied despite a few um, a few monographs that have been published over the years. I'm thinking about Patenaud and others who wrote uh, excellent books on the ARA, the American Relief Administration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So moving from let's say, qualities of humanitarianism, which um, you touched on militarization, engineering approaches, um, and um, thinking about communications and media and photography. You consider the orphan and the Ottoman Armenian as prominent subjectivities represented in communications campaigns of two key organizations, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions and Near East Relief. You shed light on these organizations' entrenchment in networks of the American political elite and Christian missionaries. And you critically interpret representations of Armenian survivors of the genocide and of orphans. How and why did the orphan become so central to certain American humanitarian organizations? They become so central because they encompass, they embody everything that they stand for, and they, they can be used in the most efficient way for propaganda fundraising reasons. First of all, an orphan, because of its or his status, uh, the fact that uh, she or he has no parents, uh, will become an adult at some point. So the commitment in terms of money, and I'm sorry if I'm speaking in a very crude way, the commitment of the organization is limited over time. Secondly, orphans are perfect because, first of all, when they're very little, they are not gendered. So they can be used for all sorts of uh, you know, propaganda campaigns of the organizations and to raise uh, money uh, in the most efficient way. Very often, they were whitened. I mean, Ottoman Armenians as Christians appear to be extremely white, which is part of, uh, you know, the things that I, I say in, in the book. So uh, um, they become extremely appealing for American political elites that you refer to in your, uh, in your question. But they also, and we go back to the first question, it would be very almost impossible to understand um, the history of American humanitarianism in the late 1910s, in the early 1920s, if we do not understand the role played by Christian missionaries 
And if you think about American missionaries, and you refer to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, the ABCFM, well, the ABCFM have been, you know, working with our uh, Ottoman Armenians for almost a century, sometimes for a century. So, and again, I use virtual inverted commas. These were their people. They knew how to deal uh, with the Armenians. Many American uh, missionaries didn't speak Turkish, but they spoke Armenian. Just to give you an example of how important, how, the, the kind of things that they, they could do. So they cared about these orphans. When it comes to the Near East Relief, and I conclude uh, my, my answer to your question, uh, the Near East Relief at the very beginning is extremely uh, um, ambitious. In 1918, 1919, they try to do adult relief but it is extremely expensive and impossible. Also because all these people, uh, Ottoman Christians, minorities, and I'm speaking here about the Armenians, of course, those what survived, but also the Orthodox, are moving because of the war that is going on caused by the Greek occupation of Turkey. So the Near East Relief and its people, and by the way, many of the people that were working for the Near East Relief were missionaries themselves. Many of them belong to the ABCFM. They cannot follow. They, they are not, they are extremely technological, but they cannot follow these people when they move. Humanitarian aid works when people don't move. And this explains the importance of camps and refugee camps in particular. This is when you can dispatch humanitarian aid. If people keep moving, how can you help? They knew perfectly well. And actually, if you look at the geography of humanitarian aid, it takes place very close to seaports, railways, rail stations, and roads. But we know very well that so many of these communities live in very remote places. Cilicia, etc., are a perfect example of that. So there is this dimension that needs to be um, uh, uh, explained, which, as a result, explains very well why the Near East Relief stops adult relief and concentrates on Ottoman Armenian orphans. The number is there, they can be displaced, they can be put in boarding schools, in camps, wherever they can be put in, and they can start working. And you can show, you organization, you Near East Relief, you can show that you have been successful. You can set up success story of relief on before and after, uh, how they were before, uh, when we uh, rescued them, and look what we made out of that. We made Americanized elites that in the propaganda, of course, uh, would have changed the face of the Near East, would have modernized the Near East. That, that's the message of the propaganda of the Near East, really. Through these orphans, who be became objects rather than subjects of something that, of course, they could not fully grasp, which was so much beyond them. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm really struck um, by your comments on mobility and um, immobility and um, the stopping and starting and general temporality of relief. Uh, and so let's stay with that. 
Um, and in fact, one of the prevailing themes of your book is the ephemerality of international humanitarian relief. It comes and goes like a cloud, stubborn in its directionality and often discriminating in its distribution of resources. Humanitarian clouds pass over Alexandropol, today Gyumri, and Jerusalem, Al-Quds, where relief operations fused with it even repurposed military operations and infrastructures. In both places, humanitarian work by the likes of the American Red Cross and American Relief Administration was terminated. Why were these initiatives terminated, and what were the aftershocks of discontinuing relief? The, it's, it's a question that I, that I like very, very much because there is a discrepancy, a disconnect, which is absolutely absolutely deliberate by all these organizations between, you know, perfect stories of uh, beautiful planning and the reality of situations, political and military, which were extremely volatile, that none of the international humanitarian institutions could control. So when you read the pamphlets, the propaganda and everything else, you seem to read a story which is absolutely uh, beautiful, but absolutely not real, fabricated, you know, of uh, how we uh, were so successful in saving 10,000, 15,000, 35,000 uh, Armenians or Greek Orthodox or Ottoman Christians here and there, etc. But the reality, and you mentioned Yumri or Akuds or other places, it's completely different. These institutions depended on how the war evolved. How many of them, for instance, thought that Turkish nationalists could win the war? At the very beginning, not so many of them. In, 19, in late 1921, they start realizing that very likely they would be sooner or later expelled from Turkey because Mustafa Kemal will win this war. These change everything. So uh, military operations, uh, battles, fights, uh, wins, you know, battles that are lost, uh, impacts infrastructures and, and things that were supposed to be permanent and uh, uh, will not be permanent. Buildings, schools, clinics, hospitals, none of these things can survive the turmoil of the Near East and the Middle East from 1918 to 1923, which is the absolute opposite of the ways in which missionaries had been working for a century, building step after, after step a small cleaning clinic, turning it into a small hospital, etc., etc. Now, we have not to forget that these institutions depended on money, on fundraising campaigns. So to answer to your question, so many of these institutions had to terminate their operations because they ran out of money. The American Red Cross, it's a typical example. The American Relief Administration, the Near East Relief, and all, you know, the uh, smaller, uh, the smaller uh, organizations that were on the spot from 1918 to 1923. This is one aspect. The other aspect is the political situation. Once Turkey becomes independent, the Republic of Turkey is there. So basically 1923, 
all these institutions are expelled, right? So either they terminate the work or they go elsewhere. But we should not forget an ideological dimension to the story that I'm telling you and sharing with you, which is the setting up of the, of the mandates, which is a colonial history, I'm sorry to say, but the mandates were more of uh, more colonies. And the humanitarians were absolutely fine with the British and the French taking over. So for so many of them, it's mission accomplished. Now, of course, we might add that for many Protestants, the fact that Lebanon becomes, you know, under a French colonial rule, it's something that they dislike profoundly because the first thing the French will do is to enhance the work of Catholic, French-related or close to the French interest kind of institutions, and they will do everything they can to make sure that any Protestant institution will be marginalized as much as possible. This also explains why so many other initiatives are terminated. I would love to um, return to Lebanon later in our interview, um, but let's stay maybe within the mandate of Syria and Lebanon. Um, and let's look at Aleppo, which you describe as a crossroad for survivors amid these circumstances of genocide and displacement and expulsion. In this urban center, displaced Armenians amassed and self-organized, just as they did in Beirut and Cilicia. In Aleppo, a certain Karen Yepa established a rescue home in collaboration with the League of Nations. She soon expanded her operations as well as, well as partnerships with local institutions and garnered support from a range of donors. Who was Karen Yepa, and how do her activities shed light on the tensions between international humanitarians and French colonial authorities in the mandate for Syria and Lebanon? Well, in a way, I already alluded it to 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 uh, profiles like uh, that of Karen Yepe. Karen Yepe was uh, a missionary, a Danish missionary, and a woman, um, and uh, an extremely brave. Uh, independent kind of woman. If you read League of Nations accounts, you've got the impression that uh, uh, she depended on the on the League of Nations. I have a different idea. I think that the League of Nations needed her uh, as a key to, you know, uh, say or tell more successes story. But uh, yet they could have done without the League of Nations in so many ways, and and she did. So. Um, there are a number of very small actors that continue working, and many of them were missionaries. Once again, we go back to the role of missionaries that, in my view, uh, should not be underestimated, uh, you know, telling tales of modernity and pretending that uh, humanitarianism, Western humanitarianism is, uh, is secular. It is not. It is not. And many of these missionaries were geeks. They love technologies. Uh, many of them had very specific competencies. They were um, specialists in agricultures, in forests, in fishing. Many of them were teachers. Many of them were medical doctors. So you have a range of extremely modern competencies, but they remain also missionaries. So this is this is an example. We could expand, and I do expand on the activities of Yepet, in, in the book. I also want to go back to the point that you made on uh, a crossroad for survivors. 
and there again, I mean, uh, for me, and I, I will always be thankful to real Ottomanists, I'm not one, uh, and other people who have been working on local archives and have a, a knowledge of uh, uh, so many other stories that I read about, but of course that I will never find in the uh, archives that I've been researching. In the archives that I know something about, these people are never mentioned. And you get a narrative, which is we rescued them. Uh, and if they survive today, this is thanks to us. But in fact, when you combine the kind of literature that I'm referring to, to the uh, primary sources I've been working on, there is a, a very important discrepancy. And my sense or my interpretation is that uh, many people had already saved themselves uh, without any kind of need of uh, Western or American institutions. Many, the survivors were organized in local networks of local people that knew each other and uh, knew other communities or were aware of the difficulties that uh, other uh, uh, communities, Armenian communities, have been experiencing Sorry, in previous years. So there is... Um, a, uh, a completely parallel world in terms of humanitarian aid that is completely untouched by uh, or, you know, not covered by these humanitarian organizations. Contrary to what they pretend and contrary to what they write down in their, you know, newsletters, in their annual reports, etc., etc. So... This, uh, um, this resilience, to use a term that is very fashionable today, exists, but is completely erased in the stories, in the narratives of these humanitarian organizations that uh, I've been working on and studying. So to conclude uh, on this question, I do believe that uh, uh, it is very, very important for people like me that have a kind of... Uh, uh, indirect access to these other narratives to take them extremely seriously because you will find that uh, the story is very different. I would like to add also that uh, a, um, a huge blind spot in the archives of all these institutions is of course the ways in which Ottoman welfare was organized and Muslim charities were organized. These people completely forget, deliberately so, about the needs of the majority of Ottoman populations that remain Muslims. This is a huge silence. We talk about silence an awful lot. Well, this is one. And to me, this is a very, very meaningful one. Because not only they could rescue a tiny, tiny percentage of Ottoman Armenians who happened to survive probably thank to, to themselves, but they do not care at all about the needs of the vast majority of populations. Like you, you mentioned Aleppo, uh, Beirut, Silesia. Majority of these people remain uh, not Christians. And of course, they are never mentioned in the archives of these institutions. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm um, struck by your comments on um, solidarity, on collective action, and on the erasure of collective organizing and how archives are as structured 
by their omissions as they are um, by their contents. Um, so staying with the theme of erasure, um, maybe we can move now to the Treaty of Lausanne, <laughs> signed a century ago in 1923, and it formalized so-called population exchanges between Turkey and Greece. It coincided, as you've mentioned, with the military campaigns of Mustafa Kemal, which entailed violent aggressions threatening Ottoman Christian populations in Western Turkey. These campaigns multiplied internecine violence. How did the Treaty of Lausanne impact the ambitions and operations of international humanitarians amid these circumstances of warfare and mass displacement? Well, we go back to what we said uh, a few minutes ago about uh, the role, the importance, the significance, and uh, how, the extent to which Kemal and Turkish nationalists had been overlooked by Western policymakers, not just the Greeks. Of course, the Greeks uh, are blinded by the Megali idea and all the rest, and they lost the war. Uh, they are on the losing side, and this is something that is very, very evident to everybody in Lausanne, but also back in Athens and in Istanbul and everywhere else. But the winning party and those who are calling the shots in Lausanne are the Turks. This is unexpected. This upsets everybody in, you know, uh, Western foreign offices in London, in Paris and elsewhere. That's a big problem. This is a big problem. And then again, humanitarian organizations are not uh, the main actors. They pretend to be, but they are not. Same thing with the League of Nations. They are an epiphenomenon. Despite what they claim, despite what we can read uh, in the archives, the Turks are deciding. And the so-called population exchange, which, which is a forced removal of population, there is nothing happy about uh, what happens from 1922 to 1923, including um, Muslim communities living in, in, in Greece that are forcefully displaced a little later on in 1923-1924, well, all this is decided and happens without any kind of control by humanitarian actors. They can just react, they do it the best they can, and again, when it comes to Ottoman Christians, I've got the impression that so many of them, we can talk about uh, people coming from the Black Sea, we can talk about people coming from Asia Minor, from Eastern Thrace, all these different communities, those who managed to get to uh, continental Greece or one of the islands, uh, save themselves. And whenever they manage to get there, thanks to um, one or the other international organizations, humanitarian organizations, the Near East Relief, for instance, is extremely active in operating these uh, mass removals by boats in the Black Sea. Well, once they are in Greece, these people are on their own. And if you look at the history of the Refugee Settlement Commission, I, I have personally a very, very hard time defining the Refugee Settlement Commission as a humanitarian actor. They have nothing of a humanitarian actor. They are a political actor, and the financial money-related issues are extremely important. If you start from the assumption that humanitarian actions are supposed to be for free, 
Well, everything that the Refugee Settlement Commission does after 1933 has nothing to do with being for free, right? So there is a fundamental change in 1923 when these uh, alleged Greeks, what never set their feet in Greece before 1923 for the vast majority of them, and Turks, who are not Turks at all, are so-called exchanged. They are not exchanged. They are forced to go somewhere else because this myth, which is a very nationalistic kind of myth, the homogeneity of the nation, is extremely popular. And this is what uh, so many humanitarians believe in. There is one exception. The missionaries, once again, to them, this is the beginning of the end. Because, of course, this means that uh, there won't be Ottoman minorities uh, in, the, uh, in the new Republic of, uh, of Turkey. There won't be uh, Christians anymore in the name of this myth and this homogeneity of the new nation. That's, that's very important. And this will also have impact uh, of sorts in Lebanon, in Syria, in, uh, um, in Palestine for sure, and in Greece itself where, not surprisingly, uh, Ottoman Armenians who ended up there are asked to Hellenize their identities to become good Greeks, precisely to avoid becoming minorities in Greece. And they are encouraged to do so by the Near East Relief. Wow. That's Quite a dark and um, gripping um, explication of the Treaty of Lausanne. Um, and so let's, uh, you ended on with nearest relief, so let's stay there. Yes. Um, you trace how this organization transformed into the Near East Foundation, which still exists today. And you highlight especially the activities of Near East Foundation or NEF in Greece, Lebanon, and Syria. NEF demonstrated a commitment to so called technical assistance and modernization, especially in the domain of agriculture. Foregrounding these ideas, namely modernization, technical assistance, positioned Near East Foundation as a vanguard of social scientific development following World War II. You discussed surveys commissioned by NEF in the 1920s with visions for rural life in the Near East. So how did these surveys informed the Near East Foundation's later work in agriculture in Lebanon and Greece, for instance? It's, there again, uh, a super interesting uh, part of my research, I think. This is when I discovered that uh, so many of the themes, uh, um, activities, politics and policies of the United Nations in the 1960s had been implemented in so many ways already by uh, its predecessors or one of its predecessors, if you consider the Near East Foundation to be, uh, you know, connected in in some ways to the United Nations uh, uh, after 1943, uh, after 1945 or 1949. Well, that's exactly what they did. The survey uh, is very important because is. Uh, hard evidence of a way of working which promises to be scientific. So the survey itself is something that means an awful lot. 
and uh, academics, scholars, play a super important, uh, the equivalent of you and I, <laughs> play a very important role in, in this kind of uh, service. So there is something to be said about that. There is something about to be said about uh, proto-development. Of course, development is not the term that was used to indicate what, what they were doing. But I, got, I go back to uh, racism, civilizational posture, and so on and so forth. Actually, what the Near East Foundation is doing back in the 1930s, this is not at all what they're doing today. Huh? I'm, I'm not referring to the institution as it is today. But back then, for sure, in the vision uh, of the Near East Foundation, the present and the future of the Near, e of the Near East as a region, going from Lebanon and Syria back to Greece, or Iraq, as a matter of fact, is centered around agriculture. You have no conversation whatsoever about an industrial future for it. Because, of course, in the eyes of these people, the Near East is an undeveloped kind of region. And it's not at all surprising that so many of these scholars, many of them had been working for the Rockefeller Foundation, including in Lebanon, in Palestine, and in other places, have an idea of what the present or the future of this region is going to be, which is based on colonial experiences that have been done by U.S. experts in the Philippines or in the American South with respect to autochthonous populations of the American continent and, of course, African-Americans. So if you think about the curricula, if you think about how they want to develop agriculture or education, what kind of subjects these kids are going to be taught at school, you can clearly draw interesting parallels, not only uh, because the experts very often have been working all uh, you know, in, this, in these places and with these communities, but also because they share the same vision. And this is the, the way they imagine, they envision the future of the Near East. And they find all these extremely interesting because, of course, uh, this is also what some nationalist party, if you think about Metaxa in Greece in the 1930s, etc., uh, there, there are lines of convergence between these political, technical, or political-slash-technical visions that the Near East Foundation brings in, or the Rockefeller Foundation, and what uh, political elites in these countries want to do, or, of course, the, the colonial uh, uh, rulers, uh, whether in Syria, in Lebanon, or in Palestine, have in mind for the um, uh, progress. And, of course, there again, I use inverted commas, uh, of uh, uh, progress within these, these places, uh, or how this is going to look like in, uh, in 10, 15, 20 years. So I think that this is really a way for me also to break periodo periodizations, um, histories of the 20th century, how I do connect the missionaries with the Near East Foundation in the 1930s, themes, Agriculture is one. We could refer to public health, which is extremely important and it's really one of the pillars of the activities that they perform. 
in other areas where there are less uh, um, less adventures simply because they lack the money to pursue, for instance, political administrative reforms. Wow. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, indeed, yeah, the transnational um, currents and transhistorical trends and cycles uh, that you interweave in your book are very impressive and striking and inspiring. And um, it's now time for the penultimate question, which hovers kind of around those qualities of your research in this project. So I turn to the epilogue, actually, of your book, Night on Earth, where you reiterate how the activities of international humanitarians in the Near East, particularly those activities related to technical assistance and social engineering, were, here I quote you, resolutely paternalistic based on civilizational and racist assumptions, end quote. I truly appreciate how you zoom out and situate the historical period covered by Night on Earth in a broader context addressing the formations of self-help and philanthropy in the 19th century, and also the afterlives of such ideologies in humanitarianism today. I was struck throughout by the correlations you draw between reconstruction and rural modernization of the American South following the American Civil War in the mid-19th century, with the methods adopted by various non-state actors in the Near East. Could you comment on those parallels and whether you think they are still at play today? Yes. Um, you know, uh, I, I do live in Geneva and probably uh, I will not make um, many new friends by saying what I'm about to say. But um, uh, you probably know that uh, after the humanitarian um, uh, summit of 2016 in Istanbul, one of the key words that has been used so massively by so many humanitarian organizations uh, is localization, right? Um, for those of us who follow the politics of humanitarian actions, the ways in which uh, these institutions operate today, you know, this has become really, really important. But if you think as a historian for a second, the uh, masters of localization, were colonial rulers, and these humanitarians have very well understood how to penetrate, you know, uh, entrust uh, locals with responsibilities, and this was done in a way to control them. You know, uh, humanitarian aids came with strings attached back in the early 20th century. Is this the case today? I'm not so systematically sure, but in the ways in which so many of these institutions operate today, even when they pretend that they are doing something new, when in fact they are merely reinventing the wheel, and probably you will tell me that this is the historian talking, and so there is absolutely nothing under the sun, nothing new under the sun. Well, I do see this um, uh, uh, falling in love with terms, with buzzwords, etc., which is so typical of NGOs in the last part of the 20th century and then the first 20, 25 years, 21st century, not being entirely dissimilar uh, to this paternalism uh, and civilizational postures or racist assumptions uh, that I refer to in the book. 
it would be very unfair to so many of these institutions to claim or to say that they are racist today. So many of them went uh, a long way, you know, in terms of introspection or autocritique. Uh, I'm thinking about MSF, but even the International Committee of the Red Cross in so many ways have been thinking and rethinking about uh, who they are today, what they want to do. And uh, and so the, the, I'm not claiming at all here that uh, these institutions have not changed or the uh, assumptions upon which they operate are not different from the early 20th century. It's not about that. But there is this asymmetry between those who give and those who receive, which is absolutely the same. And this is a dilemma that can hardly be broken. I don't know how we could imagine a different paradigm, and it's not my job in any case. I'm just a historian, so I, I observe what is uh, happening before me, either yesterday or, or today. And so for me, the, the, the very idea of looking at um, rural modernization in the American South, uh, the examples of the post-American Civil War reconstruction period, etc., was a way for me to signal that all these ideas, practices, ways of seeing, the ways of seeing how humanitarian actions should be performed, have very long, very deep origins, and the same applies, I'm afraid, to practices that international organizations and NGOs or philanthropic foundations keep, uh, you know, enforcing and implementing in 2023. Thank you for that. To conclude our interview today, it would be wonderful to hear about your current projects. What are you working on these days, David, and how have your interests developed since the release of your book? So in the last three years, and also because of the pandemic, I've, I've been extremely busy with something that has not, nothing to do with research. I've been the head of the uh, interdisciplinary program of uh, the Geneva Graduate Institute where I work. This has been a, a, a collective effort, and I... I've been, you know, at the head of it, but I'm just a facilitator of it. And um, it, it's really, really important for me because it's in so many ways connected to Night on Earth because so many of the students that we have in this master program end up either working for their governments, uh, foreign office, in the public sector, with philanthropic foundations, with humanitarian NGOs, with MSF, with ICRC, Save the Children, etc., etc. So... Uh, many of them are interested in the environment, in sustainable finance, etc. So this has been a huge part of my life. And um, we are starting year two of the reform of this program. And it has been a very exciting professional adventure. In terms of research, um, when I will be allowed to, uh, to have a sabbatical, I would like to start working on a project which is tentatively entitled Imaginaries of Fear. And I really would like to work on, on fear um, and historicize it. And I'd really, again, like to work on the late 19th century and the 20th century. And so many ways um, explain why I'm so attracted to fear because in all my books, in a way or another, in a very silent way, probably, uh, fear is extremely present. And um, another thing that struck me after the war between Ukraine and uh, Russia began 
was the extent to which my daughters were now 18 and 16 have not been exposed to nuclear fear, whereas I, a kid of the early 1970s, uh, grew up with uh, nuclear fear as you know uh, as as something that was extremely present in my life, and of course the fear of uh, a nuclear war, but also the fears related to uh, nuclear energy. So uh, um, there is this side of fear that. Um, uh, fascinates me and I would like to investigate more and there is another side of fear that is equally uh, uh, important and related to the Mediterranean Sea. I was born in Sicily so um, uh, I am personally very very affected by uh, the uh, current crisis which probably with a misnomer is called the refugee crisis and I've always been thinking about these people whether they come from Mali or from Afghanistan, really, to me, doesn't make a difference. That have to overcome such huge fear, and uh, the, they they are ready to face the Sahara. They are ready to face, you know, crossing so many dangerous places in order to reach uh, this alleged El Dorado that uh, is Europe. Uh, they are ready to uh, put their bodies and minds into a, uh, a dinghy that will never make it, probably. They know that might die at sea. And this is something that uh, I believe as a historian we have to write on. And I'm, this is what I would like to do, whether I will succeed in doing this or not. I cannot say you. I know that this would be a very, very long project, but as I told you before, I've been extremely unfaithful and I'm, I've been moving from one topic to another with some patterns. There are things that remain in my work, but with um, this idea of um, uh, abandon the capital of knowledge that I've got or reuse it in different ways in, in new work, in new research. And this is really what I would like to do for the next 10, 15 years. And by then I will have to retire because of Swiss legislation. <laughs> well, your unfaithful uh, track record and uh, pursuits are quite inspirational. Uh, Imaginaries of Fear sounds like an excellent project, and um, I wish you the best of luck with that. And want to thank you also for being on the show today. It was a true delight to speak with you and have a wonderful rest of the year. Thank you very much. It was my greatest pleasure, and um, thank you so much for having me.